This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this back to new normal, what do we call it? Back to Beach Hall. Back to Beach Hall. Back to Beach. I like it. It's yeah. an alliteration. Back to Beach episode is the Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. It is. I can reach out and touch you. Yeah, we're and, right, and we're we're right here. we're not on GoToMeeting or Microsoft Teams we're not wearing clunky headsets and wondering if our bandwidth was enough and yelling at our significant others to stop playing World of Warships yeah, or to consume our, all the bandwidth. Our dogs to settle down. Our dogs down. to be quiet, right. right? So this is beautiful. We are in the sound booth. Yeah, so that, that acoustic perfection you hear, meaning the echo and the other sort of ambient noise you don't hear, is a function of our new facility, which is part of something we've been teasing out for some months now, the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center. So this is really the house that Pete built. Pete Daly, our CEO, this was his brainchild. It's coming together. And so we will do the podcast in person from this facility forevermore, pretty much. Yeah. Right? I mean, some of our guests will be remote. Like our next guest this afternoon, we're going to have a lieutenant from Bahrain. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. But we'll be here in, in our at least acoustic perfection. Which yeah. Is, which which is nice. great. It's fantastic. Yeah. So it's good to see you and uh, very excited to be back to normal. I will also, uh, the listener can't see this, but we are joined by our first block of midshipman interns. So it's Nick, Marcus, and Joey. They're all firsties. Two history majors, one English. English major. Two guys want to go subs. One guy wants to go surface warfare. We're going to change that before they leave. They'll all be aviation kind of guys. That's what we do here. But we're very happy to have our interns back in our midst. We missed them last summer because of COVID. And uh, this is super exciting. And, and my morale is sky high that we're back to in-person New normal with interns in the house. And today is our first Pizza Wednesday, which is a big event, right? Interns in the house with pizza. Pizza means pepperoni, and the refreshment is real Coke, no Diet Coke. So freedom from choice, that's what we do here. And uh, we're very excited, and we'll do more and more with these guys while they're here. Uh, so without any further ado, the other thing that's very cool this time is our guest is in person with us as well. Yeah. Man, it's like in person. I can't handle all this normalcy. It's freaking me out. <laughs> it's really great. Yeah. So our guest today is Dr. Nick Lambert, an economist, historian, and author of Sir John Fisher's Naval Revolution, Planning Armageddon. And just this year, his latest book is The Warlords and the Gallipoli Disaster. Nick wrote the American Sea Power Project article in the April proceedings. His article is titled, What is a Navy for? 
Now, readers can find it starting on pages 44 and 45 of the April issue of Proceedings. Uh, and if you don't uh, subscribe to the print magazine, you can find it online. Go to www.usni.org forward slash American dash C dash power dash project. And all of our American Sea Power Project articles are on that page. So, Nick, uh, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Good morning. Yes, great to have you here. Uh, and also, some of our listeners will uh, will have attended the uh, virtual American Sea Power Project event that we did in mid-April, uh, which is all on, on our YouTube channel. And we had you and Paul Giara and Jerry Roncolato and Jim Holmes, the first four authors of the American Sea Power Project, on that uh, video uh, event, which was great. It was uh, well subscribed, both live and then a lot of people have watched it since then. But if you haven't seen that, if our listeners haven't seen it yet, you can go to the Naval Institute YouTube channel and find the American Sea Power Project uh, event. So uh, let me read the opening paragraph of your article. Uh, it is. It says, speaking to Congress, the chief of naval operations recently argued that the purpose of the U.S. Navy hinged on the timeless missions of sea control and power projection. Perhaps so, you say. But to most people, these phrases raise more questions than they answer. Control at what cost and to what end? Power to do what exactly? Projected where and how? Such declarations seem unlikely to induce taxpayers to fork over the enormous sums entailed, especially when so many think the money could be better spent fixing pressing domestic problems. But this is nothing new. How is it not new? The Navy, the United States Navy in particular, has always had a great deal of trouble um, obtaining the money that it requests or needs to do its job. It goes right the way back to 1775. Um, whenever uh, the Navy has, the Navy's always put forward grand plans, or and sometimes reasonably coherent explanations of what the Navy is supposed to do. Uh, but time and time again, its uh, requests for appropriations have been cut down by the Congress simply because most American people don't really see what it does for them. Yeah. So, d despite the fact that the United States is a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, it's a nation with with two grand coasts, Pacific and Atlantic, uh, we've had a uh, a global navy for you know well on two hundred years now, really. Uh, but despite that, we we have a hard time arguing for its existence. Yes. So selling it. Selling. I mean, first, the first thing you do, well, the last line in my article was, you know, there was a, uh, the, the British Admiral, uh, Jackie Fisher, who I'm a great fan of, and uh, he, he invariably said to most things, he said, you know, the, uh, well, the recipe for jugged hair begins with first catch your hair. And he invariably used that phrase in connection with money, finance, ships. I said, well, you can have whatever plan you want. You can have a whatever explanation you want. But first, you've got to get the money. And to get the money, you need to sell the Navy to the American people and uh, to and, uh, embolden uh, the, the Navy's rep uh, or the, the people's representatives to actually provide the amounts of money. And and that really, uh, for our listeners and for those who uh, maybe aren't as familiar with the American Sea Power Project, when we started this uh, and, and kicked it off in the January issue, one of the things that we were looking to do was to um, get a group of experts to write about the Navy at a very strategic level this year, 2021. 
um, and not to just explain the purpose of the Navy and the strategy of, of uh, Navy or the sea services to those that are in the sea services, but also to get this conversation to expand beyond that, to expand to the halls of Congress, to expand uh, into the administration, whichever administration was in power, uh, and, and expand beyond that to, uh, to the American public as well. Because as you point out, um, despite the fact that American, you know, Amer- the American economy and commerce depends so much on world trade, global trade, uh, a lot of Americans don't understand that. Correct. I mean, if, if you want to sell your crop of soybeans on the world market and get a good, good price for it, the Navy can help you do it. If you want to buy your cheap flat screen TV from Asia, you pay the low price because of what the Navy does. I mean, I'm putting it in very, very simple, very crude terms, but the Navy's connected to all of this. Yeah, it's about economics. It's um, about international economics. And, and as you said, early on, from our earliest days, we've had to sort of put this argument, this this call to action, this petition to the American public, and Mahan himself sort of figured out that I'm not going to couch this in terms of battle. I'm going to couch this in terms of economics. Mahan is the first person to actually join all the dots and come up with a coherent explanation for what a Navy is for. And initially, he tried to sell it to the Navy, and then very quickly, um, he realized that this was probably the wrong audience to pitch his ideas to. He switched to focusing on educating American people and Congress. So let's talk a bit more about Alfred Thayer Mahan. The conventional understanding, especially within the Navy, I think, is that Mahan, that his main argument was about the primacy of the combat battle fleet. Uh, You say his most important point was actually economic. What what was that point? What was, you know, what was Mahan saying about uh, the global economy or about economies in general and commerce? Well, he's actually attempting to, the question he is attempting to answer in his uh, in his work is what is a navy for? I mean, it really he is addressing this question square on, and he's basically in through his studies he's saying is well, what does a navy actually do for you? Why would you invest so much in a navy? And he comes to the conclusion that really navies have always been intimately involved with international trade, and he reaches also reaches the conclusion that in modern history, which for him begins round about 1660. Uh, which is the, uh, you will recall his first book, Influence Sea Power on History, is 1660 to 1783. And you can probably figure out why he picked 1783 and um, why he picked 1660. And and, and what he concludes is, is that really in the global game of power between different states, really what matters most in the long run is sustained wealth generation. That's the way he put it and phrased it. Today, it's you would probably, you could say, it's akin to the idea of um, you know, sustained uh, economic growth. It's a critical factor in determining the long-term power of a state. But anyway, he, 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 he would use the phrase sustained wealth generation. And he looks at the global international system and he reaches the conclusion that in throughout modern history, the single most important source of wealth, um, wealth generated is international trade. It is literally, for him, the goose that lays the golden eggs. And you need any state and any nation, uh, but the state in particular, because the state that exercises power, is 
any state has to have access to the international trading system in order to generate wealth um, over a sustained period of time. And it's really – so it isn't actually control of the international uh, – of the seeds that he's interested in, uh, although, of course, he is. Um, but it, it's access is what he first begins. And, of course, when, he's begin, he, when he starts uh, putting together his ideas in the 1880s and 1890s, there was never any question the United States Navy was going to attempt to control the world's oceans. The best they could hope is if they got into a war with a or conflict with a major European naval power that they could they could keep the U.S. economy open, uh, the, the 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 entrances to the ports, particularly in New York. But back then, it was about forty percent of all trade ran through New York. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be able to keep the port of New York open throughout conflict, and thereby keep the United States in touch with the international global economy. Otherwise, he fears the consequences could be, you know, he, he, he reaches, he, he he's concludes from his studies that if you manage to cut off a country from the international trading system, then you, it's, it's the equivalent to placing a chokehold around their th- your throat, you know, their economic throat. It's a question of time when they're going to... Um, call it quits, and you will negotiate a peace on terms favorable to yourself. Was Mahan one of the early globalists? He, he becomes so. He doesn't, well, I wouldn't call him a globalist so much as, I mean, he, he's an international historian, um, although, you know, he's very strongly um, favors the uh, what, um, what it, history of Western Europe. But really, it's in, in his later years, in the after he's retired from the Navy, uh, Navy in 1896, he increasingly comes to the conclusion that he has to think again a little bit more because he's observing so much change going on around him in the world. And um, he can see that the international economic system has fundamentally changed. And so what he's actually witnessing is the first period of globalization. And he can see these incredible changes around him, the communications revolution, uh, steam power, Yes, the, you know, the the sheer volume of international trade and its increasing importance to all industrial developed countries, and so you could call him probably more accurately uh, the f- one of the first students of globalization, and certainly the very first and probably one of the very few who has ever considered what you might call the strategic implications of globalization. Fascinating. Um, later on, you mentioned that Mahan's concern, he was concerned in 1895 about ec- the economic brittleness of uh, modern societies. How did that impact his thinking about sea power and the conduct of war? Well, it he's when he, when, when he talks about this in this article in 1895, he's no more than, it isn't a, an original thought. A lot of people have been looking with concern at the development of modern industrialized economies and uh, the societies that they support. And he's, what, what, what he notices or what these, these uh, people who are thinking about such questions notice is that really if we're going to talk about a major conflict, what people do in their everyday lives has changed fundamentally. You know, previously, when we've had a major, the last previous major war was at the beginning of the 19th century. And at that time, 90, you know, 90% of the people lived on the, on the land and or in small villages and small groups. And uh, they were involved in largely agricultural pursuits. 
And he's saying, but look at you know, the end of the 19th century, where do people now live? And they live in, in urban cities. And they work in uh, factories. And if their factories are cut off from overseas markets or overseas sources of supply, then they're thrown out of work. And then what are they going to do? They can't just simply go back to the land to grow the food they want to eat, yes? Because there's no land. They're living in the middle of a city. So what then are the implications for that? And he then reaches the conclusion, as a lot of other people do, is, well, there's only really one thing they're going to do, and that's going to riot and or pressure the United States or their home government uh, to settle quickly. And um, so what he's, he, he's afraid of is, is the modern uh, urban industrial um, uh, societies that aren't going to have what you might call the stamina to last in a long war. And there's a various other aspects too. You know, he's you know, the old generation. You know, you know, we could take it. Uh, the modern generation <laughs> is start, you know soft. I mean, people have been saying that for a thousand years. And doubtless, it's all true. Yeah, and and that actually gets to one of the major points of your latest book, The Warlords and the Gallipoli Disaster, which is that one of the main reasons for Great Britain getting into World War One and, and and its uh, its amphibious uh, operation there at Gallipoli had to do with uh, supplies of wheat coming out yeah. of Russia, right? And 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 the the British government being afraid of bread riots, etc. Uh, on the streets of Very London. Very rightly so, because the British had, um, you know, this is an, another strategic, they had too had studied the strategic implications of globalization. And in their case, they had powerful incentive to do so, because by the end of the 19th century, 80% of all wheat consumed in the UK was imported. So that's four loaves out of every five baked in uh, a British bakery comes from foreign bread or for, for foreign grain. And also, bread was the staple food for most of the working classes. That's a problem. But what happens if you're cut off? Or, except they were, well, anyway, I, I probably shouldn't uh, go to too far down that line. But really, what was fascinating is, is they did a very detailed study of this uh, from 1903 to 1905. And they said, well, it isn't really so much the question of physical supply that's the problem. The problem is, is with the system that we built up, this international globalized trading system, it's incredibly sensitive and fragile. Yes, very sensitive to shock. And what they really were afraid of is, is that the shock to the economic system, let's say caused by the outbreak of a major war, is going to spend, send prices spiraling, rocketing. And then I don't want to get into too much economics, but it's all connected into the cold question of psychology and uh, management of risk. That's uh, really the key to it. But I'm sure most people are beginning to start to... Uh, you know, turning off or switching stations if I go <laughs> too much further down that road. It, it really is quite fascinating how they're getting into the, the, the studying uh, early. Um, it's basically early studies of psychology and behavioral economics. Well, proceedings podcast listeners are here for the duration. Yeah. We, you know, there's no uh, we, subject that's off the table. We're not that. afraid to go deep. We, no, we go deep. <laughs> we go deep, yeah. So, Nick, one of the sections on page 48 is titled Confusing Objectives with objects. And it starts with, why is my hand not remembered this way? So talk to us about what that's all about. Um, well, uh, yes, Mahan thinks, particularly after he's done his, so he, 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 he comes up with his version 1.0 C power, as I like to call it, in around about 1890. 
And then he looks at it again. And during the 1890s, as I say, he's increasingly aware of the world around him and uh, this, the, the strategic implications of globalization. And he work, comes up with his 2.0 version of CPA, which hardly anyone ever read. Uh, but he still nevertheless hoped and thought that his message would endure. His, the, what the, all the, the, uh, the well, I hate the word lessons, but for the want of a better word, the lessons uh, that he had discovered would be, continue to be read and continue to be thought of and, uh, and useful. Uh, not just to the United States Navy, but to anybody who really wanted to understand sea power worked. And uh, he, probably until his death in December of 1914, that was true. Uh, the problem is, is that very shortly after his death, um, his ideas quickly became forgotten um, and or deemed irrelevant. And the reason was, is, of course, the First World War. The First World War destroys the first era of globalization. What specifically happened there? Well, uh, a number of things. First of all, all the things that had been predicted about uh, risk management uh, came true. Um, uh, although there was plenty of wheat around, the price of wheat was doubling, tripling uh, by December of 1914. And they were looking at forecasts saying it was going to quadruple, quintuple. Well, if you start increasing the price of food by a factor of four or five, you're going to have major political problems at home. And which, of course, leads into uh, you know, uh, an attempt by the British government to head off this problem uh, by launching its attack at Gallipoli. Um, but, but as the war drew on, increase, uh, you know, one thing is, is that Britain, of course, uh, exercises sea power to cut off the central powers, Germany and Austria, from the international trading system, although not with a huge amount of success initially, um, largely because the... Um, British banks and the British shippers and the British communication companies were making far too much money um, shipping contraband in through uh, uh, contiguous neutral countries. So all of the, um, and, and of course, um, the United States had a great deal to say because they were making a fortune selling to both sides in the war as well. So there was um, a corporate interest, should we say, um, had uh, powerful reasons to keep the trade going. But nevertheless, it becomes increasingly regulated as the war goes on. And then, of course, you, as you know, in 1916-17, the Germans start sinking everything that was floating, uh, which so constricts the flow that uh, governments step in and effectively nationalize uh, the shipping industry. Um, and they turned it into a giant, you know, not, not a free trade system at all. Um, it's like a giant conveyor belt system for munitions rolling across the Atlantic, literally. So, so this is sort of the timeless reality of globalization. So you have the goodness of... You know, when it's ascendant, everybody's benefiting and yes. this cooperation. And then the event of, of strife, conflict, then you realize there's an, another side to globalization yes. where now you have a dependency um, that, that can shake up, yeah. you know, domestic politics, obviously economics and the price of yeah. basic goods and services. And then you realize, oh, globalization is not all good. Maybe a better way of putting it is is that globalization sets up what you might call a virtuous circle. So you go in a circular motion upwards, but unfortunately it can go into reverse. And it sets up a, uh, what is it, the opposite of virtuous, uh, a vicious circle, yes, where it spirals downwards at ever accelerating rate. Well, I mean, this is the 70s with, with OPEC and you know, the price of oil and, and those kinds of things. And the United States was made to understand 
the the nature of globalization with gas lines and other things. I remember very distinctly waiting in a gas line with our Ford Torino, you know, eight cylinder car. And that's when America's finally like, you know, maybe we should build smaller cars, which the auto industry had been fighting for years and years, right? Because of the domestic market. And they realized, oh yeah, we probably need to think about that. So, you know, the United States is largely self-sufficient for most things, but as you quite rightly say, in the 1970s, it certainly wasn't for oil. Uh, but no, when we talk about globalization, we're talking about huge volumes of trade, uh, whereby maybe, you know, 15, 20, 25, 30% of your exports or your, your GDP is connected to the international trading sector. So if your, uh, you, your, your economy is exposed to the international economy, let's say only 5% of it, then the effects are not going to be too devastating. Although it depends because there are certain key sectors of the economy which will have a disproportionate, um, disproportionately greater effects than you might think. But no, by and large, uh, when we're talking about a globalized economy, which was the period 1870 to 1914, and then from mid-1980s till the present day, uh, that's a different proposition entirely. This is when we're talking about 20-25% of the international economy. Um, linked in some way or maybe two steps away. Uh, one way to think about it is if you can imagine, you know, the sh the, you walk into a supermarket and look at all the products on the shelves. Yes. Um, if international trade suddenly disappeared tomorrow, what percentage of the products on the supermarket shelves would suddenly disappear? And today, the, probably the figure would be somewhere in the region of 50 to 60% overnight. Well, we, we saw this with what, yeah, what was the, the, the ever given? Right? Yeah, ever given. So the right. ship, the, Suez, the right? ship that gets stuck in the Suez Canal, and the, uh, uh, the the statistic that blew my mind was that the cost was four hundred million dollars per hour. Oof. Yeah. I thought you were going to say per day. No, per, per hour. hour. And, oh my god! Right? And yeah. it, it was like six and a half days of the canal being shut. Uh, and the supply chain reverberations, right, uh, were were amazing. And that, that I think it's like 11 or 12% of the global economy passes through the Suez Canal. Yeah, people have been saying this to me. I, my previous book before the warlords was Planning Armageddon, which is the study of economic warfare in the First World War. And they're saying, well, this is a vindication of what you're saying. And I said, well, yes and no. The thing you have to understand is this was just one ship blocking one route. Uh, it wasn't done deliberately. You get a rough idea of what's going on, but you need to, and if you think this is bad, just think what happens in time of conflict. You're not just going to have one instance, you're going to have a hundred, possibly a thousand instances. Yes. And to cap it all, this was something uh, that happened by accident and people were doing everything they could to fix it. In time of conflict, it's quite different because you've got people deliberately trying to make it worse. So you, the first thing I would say is is that if if you think that the ever given give, yes it gives you a rough idea of the sorts of problems it, it's it, it's an illustration but a very simple illustration it doesn't convey the true magnitude or the scale of the of the chaos and devastation that would be wrought in the event of a major conflict uh, between um, two major powers today yeah it it did I think. Uh uh, at least get get to be front page and front of uh, mind news for the American consumer who was suddenly realizing, 
oh, you know, that Peloton that I've ordered or the, <laughs> you know, or the chips that are going into the assembly lines yeah. to create cars here in America, right, could be on that yeah. ship or, or on another ship that's impacted, yeah. right, and or oil or natural gas coming from the uh, the Middle East. Or the, the lawn chairs you know, at Home Depot. Depot. You know, I mean, just yeah, these things. A, a, anything like, and why, why are you guys out of lawn chairs here in the right. spring? It's like, well, because they're on the Ever Given. <laughs> We're waiting. Or they're on a ship that's stuck, you know, in the Red Sea, waiting for the Ever Given to get unstuck. So, Nick, the, the word that keeps coming up as you're talking to me is the 800-pound gorilla, which is China. And as we talk about globalization and we talk about interconnected dependencies and whatnot – and near-peer adversaries. The thing about China is they're not only a potential adversary, they're also a huge investor in major corporations in the United States. Yes. And so when you talk about, okay, we saw what happened with Evergiven, which was everybody's trying to make it right. What if we have a, a hot war with a peer conflict like China all the other sort of unintended consequences or the second and third order effects that we're sort of hinting at, going back to Mahan's logic, it's it's really kind of horrific, to put it's, it mildly. If you can understand, and this is what um, I think so few people understand, is the scale of the disruption and the and the magnitude of the chaos that we created. I don't think people, it's almost as if they people program, you know, they plug in the data into their minds. And the answer is, you know, it's almost spat back out again as does not compute. People can't conceptualize it. And um, the Navy needs to explain to people. Um, mind you, the Navy possibly could do with a good job in a, a, a brush-up, refresher course for itself of the scale of the problem we're talking about, too. I think the Navy needs to better understand it as well. But so, as I was saying, that um, previously, you know, just imagine if people were deliberately trying to make this worse all the way around the world. That's where the Navy comes in. That's what the Navy exists to do, to maintain the global trading system. I mean, I would argue that the international global trading system, particularly at a high level of um, you know, high level of globalization, like the period we're in today. Right. And, and, and Nick, you make the point, and you just uh, touched on it a, a second ago, that the Navy is not making a very good convincing argument for the American public or to those in Congress who are perhaps not on the right you know, subcommittee, right, that, that studies and focuses on sea power. There's a sea, sea power subcommittee, for example, right? Um, so where are, those, where are those arguments coming up short? A number of things. First of all, there is this preoccupation with this concept of uh, power projection, which, um, as you in the paragraph that you read out at the beginning, um, and I actually spent quite a lot of time sort of tracing the origins of this and where it really seems to come from, or the intellectual origins of it come from, the very famous, quite rightly so, article by Sam Huntington published in Proceedings in May of 1954? Yes. Yes. And it's uh, it, absolute classic. The analysis in that article is uh, sheer brilliance. And, and that article, by the way, is on the American Sea Power Project homepage uh, on the Naval Institute website. Yeah. So, yes, um, National Policy in the Transoceanic Navy. And so Samuel Huntington is the first to come up. And he, he develops this um, theory of a strategic concept, of which really is a question of what is a Navy for, but it's asked in a slightly different way. And um, But he's, he's writing in the, 19, in the early 1950s, uh, right after the um, Second World War. 
And, you know, he's he lays out his logic and he says, well, all right, the United States Navy has got this huge Navy. Yes, huge fleet, active fleet. What's it for? How does it further U.S. national interests? What can it do? Uh, it's not hardly the nation's first line of defense because nobody else has got a Navy. Well, they do, but there are allies. Um, so what exactly is the purpose of the Navy? And he said, well, actually, it doesn't have really have one. Post-1945, we've already got sea control. We don't have a peer competitor. So why do we need this very large active fleet? What is it supposed to do? And it's an unanswerable question. He was quite right. Mm. You know, the, 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 the United States could assume it already possessed. Um, uh, the, the, there weren't, were no peer competitors. It could assume it already had the sea control that it existed to obtain. So why maintain the large fleet? And so what he then goes on to develop, he said, well, actually what he thinks that the Navy could do is to retask itself somewhat. And he comes up with this idea of power projection in the sense that the Navy should exist to strike from the sea uh, to influence events in the littoral regions uh, where the United States has an interest. Um, and it's for, for, for the time he is writing, 1954, he's quite right. The only thing is, is that if you look at this Sam Huntington article a bit more closely, he makes a number of really rather important assumptions that most people rather gloss over those bits. Um, one of them is that he assumes that the United States Navy is going to possess effective sea control forevermore. He's in other words, he's assuming there isn't going to be a peer, peer competitor and they're not going to have to fight for sea control. Well, how long did that last? Probably six, seven more years, right? Um, maybe. I'd be a little bit more generous than you. But, I mean, certainly if you were going to be putting it in articles uh, published in Proceedings, I would probably uh, point to Admiral Thomas Hayward's article, 1979, where he is de facto admitting that the Soviet Navy has sufficient resources that the United States Navy is now going to have to fight to maintain and obtain sea control. That's one assumption. Yeah. Um, then the, um, well, that's pretty major. That's a, a big prop that's just been pulled out from the theory of uh, power projection, is it not? Um, then the second thing is he's assuming that the United States um, is going to be the economic as well as the military uh, hegemon in perpetuity. Well, that doesn't last much beyond the 80s and the 90s. But the, really the third and most important thing is is that he's assuming that the importance of global trade is going to be remaining at the level of the 1950s. So how important was global trade in the 1950s? And the answer is very little indeed, especially in the United States. What did the United States need from overseas in the 1950s? Maybe some oil, but it had still had a fair bit in Texas and California and various other places. Um, and anything it needed from overseas, it could pretty much buy just by printing dollars. And But how true does that remain? And the answer is, well, in, you could see in the 60s and the 70s, you know, but first of all, the Western economies, uh, Western Europe, start to recover seriously and catch up economically to the United States. And then the other thing is, is of course, you're starting to see enormous growth in international trade, particularly in, from the 70s through into the early 80s. And by about 1883, 85, you're back at sorts of levels you haven't really seen since before the First World War. Hmm. Yes. And so 
the ability to regulate, control, access, or the importance of the international economy, yes, which counted for virtually nothing in the 1950s, is important once again in the 80s. So you've just defined the, the vicious cycle that we ride you know, through, through eras. And, and at the end of World War II, we were isolationist. Everybody's war-weary. We had won the peace. It's funny because as you're talking about what did we depend on, I'm thinking of when I was a young boy, the one thing that would always be made overseas was a transistor radio. That was the yeah. thing. Oh, yeah, those are made overseas. But everything else was made yeah. domestically. Our automobiles, there was no such thing as Toyota or Nissan. You know, there was Ford, yes. you know. And, and so I think the folly, maybe the beauty and the folly at once, which is we are civilian leadership of the military. Lawmakers work for their constituents. Budget priorities vary. And so to your point, Mahan's original logic that he posited to whomever was, okay, it's not a battle capability. It's an economic necessity. In some eras, the absence of a existential threat is just too quiet a call to action. So there, if you say, oh, no, this is to keep, you know, a thing that happened in the Suez, this is to keep that from happening, or the, the Straits of Malacca or the Spratly Islands or whatever, absent a here they come, like that was the beauty of the Soviet yeah threat, you know, circa Hayward, and for us it was Lehman, who we had on the podcast early on, you know, the, the existence of this existential and viable threat in the form of the Soviet Air Force and Navy is what propelled these gigantic, relatively gigantic budgets during the Reagan era. Yes. You know, they're coming, they're as good as us, we got to keep, we need more Tomcats, we need 12, 14 aircraft carriers, and now it's like... Uh, maybe we could go by on nine or eight, and then everything else will be kind of unmanned, and we'll have that cyberspace thing going on, and that'll make up for it. And you know, little by little, we seed the high ground, in, in essence, until we wake up and we realize, you know what, China's got a good navy, and now they are, in fact, a peer competitor. And if you're going up against a peer competitor, you've got to organize the navy to do the job differently, and also you need to update your assumptions. I'm not saying power projection is an obsolete idea. I'm just saying the foundations that were underpinning it no longer hold firm. So you're going to have to rethink the whole idea of power projection from ground up. But there's actually another even more fundamental difference between, uh, which is uh, came, comes in from the 1950s. And that for Mahan, he sees, he insists that the sea is a separate domain from the land. And he's, if you follow what I'm arguing. Well, I haven't made the argument yet, so... Uh, <laughs> I'm with you so far. Keep going. Excellent. Sea is wet, <laughs> land is dry. Ah. Uh, okay, let's start again. Yeah. So, there's, so, so there is actually one thing about Mahan that um, most people have seemed to have forgotten is, is that Mahan always insisted that um, the sea is a separate domain from the land, and it was possible to create and generate significant strategic pressure at sea by itself don't have to do it on the land. Now, what's the fundamental assumption behind, let's say, power projection? If you read Huntington quite closely, it is that the Navy exists to influence events on land. Yes, it's the Navy exists to help the Army and the Air Force um, achieve what needs to be achieved in the national interest on land. Well, isn't that because it's been so long since we had a war at sea? 
in terms of the United States, it's it really is World War Two. It is, and that's in a very different era when you know there was no globalization in World War Two. You know, globalization. The 20s and the 30s, they tried to get it going, and it was coughing and spluttering the whole way. But 1930s, you know, it's characterized by the Great Depression. Uh, you know, international trade was minuscule. But in, in, in terms of a military capability, right? Like to your point, aircraft carriers exist to project power yeah. over land, not to take out another navy, right? That's just not the way we think. If, of course, this is ascendant in the form of peer conflict, and now we're thinking about that again. But uh, what we called a WASX, right, war at sea exercise, I don't think they're doing those during turnaround training now. Well, what I'm trying to suggest is is that the Navy, um, it's by accepting this notion of power projection, which is now disguised under the phrase jointness, I think, too, um, is you're accepting the Navy is playing the role of handmaiden to the Army and the Air Force in the sense that you are accepting that the Navy can only help to influence events on land. There is nothing the Navy can do by itself at sea in the Navy's domain that can generate sufficient pressure upon your prospective enemy to bring the war to a conclusion on acceptable terms. And you know where that happened? Desert Storm. That's where we were force-fed the thing you just said. And it hasn't changed since then. Well, I would take it back even further to the Samuel Huntington article. So it's, it's, it's basically after the Second World War. Everybody's forgotten that, it, it, it's, as I say, there's this assumption that the na- you know, only things that matter happen on land. Yes, And the Navy is not a separate domain. Or the sea, I should say, is not a separate domain. And it is. Yeah, so flip the, flip the question the other way, right? Look at our adversary now. And Ward, you brought up China. Uh, A number of proceedings authors in the last couple of years have argued that the People's Republic of China has taken Mahan to heart, right? The the Chinese Navy reads Mahan and actually reads it and memorizes it and thinks about it and writes about it. Um, So what are some examples of Mahanian thinking in Beijing's policies today or in their strategies? And what do we do about that? Well, I'm probably not qualified to... uh tell you much. I'm not a consultant for the uh, Chinese government You're in not. Beijing. No, no. It's uh, they, um, Or maybe that's what you say if you were. <laughs> exactly. Now, offer me a good bottle of scotch and I will gladly change my answer. <laughs> the, um, if, to the extent that they have, that, and I think that they well. The, the thing you have to remember about China is one thing. They're a major player in the international trading system too. So it's not really in their interests. I mean, they are hostage to fortune themselves. They're dependent upon the sea. What happens to their economy and if that, um, somebody starts to regulate access to Chinese ports, i.e. Yeah, the U.S. Navy? Exactly. So so I look at you know the Chinese buildup uh, as um, for – you know, in their mind, a necessity to protect their shipping overseas, to protect their national interests overseas, to protect uh, the ports and the commerce and, you know, all of that happening, um, which, you know, 20, 30 years ago, they didn't have that overseas no. presence to protect, right? Uh, but I also look at, this is this is just my thinking, the Belt and Road Initiative as a way to skirt around yes. the potential influence of the United States Navy, right? Because yeah. if they've got the overland routes uh, down through Burma, uh, 
if they've got uh, overland routes through Asia to Iran, to the Iranian ports and Iranian oil that doesn't have to come through the Suez or, or sorry, the Strait of Hormuz, doesn't have to come through the Indian Ocean or the Strait of Malacca, but can go overland. Um, then that's a, a one way to not be shut down in a conflict with the United States, uh, where the United States Navy could shut down or stop, you know, ships that are headed towards China through the Strait of Malacca or through the Indian Ocean or through the South China Sea. Well, that assumes, I mean, yes, in principle, I agree with you, but there are so many different strands in that answer. I mean, that assumes, number one, that the United States Navy actually has the capability to actually do it. And I'm not entirely sure, but more importantly, it has the there is the political willingness to regulate global trade in that way. I mean, how you know you can regulate the movements and what the United States Merchant Marine can do, but how many ships in the U.S. Merchant Marine? Yeah, very few. Quite. Yeah. And um, what happens when you start messing with uh, the international trade of a neutral country? You, you really are. You're, you're affecting vital national interests. And corporate interests. Yeah, and back, we, we could go back to the corporate well, interests. Well, you, the screams and the shrieks yeah. in Washington will be deafening, just yeah. like they were back in 1914-15, by the way, right. when the British were doing it to Germany. Yeah, or in, in London and Tokyo. And you know, look yes. at the Ever Given. Yeah. I, I think, if, I'm, uh, if I remember correctly, that the ship uh, was Japanese-owned, insured in in Taipei, uh, run by a company that was Taiwan-based with a crew that was Indian. Yes. Right. Uh, and, and God knows where the... You know, and that's probably God, the easy bit. Right? That's and, the, <laughs> and, and God knows who owned everything that was on board the ship, right? Yep. All the cargo that was yes. on board was belonged to, you know, probably a, a hundred different multinational companies. And, well, and this or, is or why, what? you know, then you're getting into the whole question. Have you ever looked and studied the, the whole um, maritime insurance of general average? No. Oh, my goodness. It's complicated. I, and I pretty nasty. You better be well... If you're shipping something on sea and you own it, uh, you better be well insured. Uh, having read up on all of that, um, you know, I've shipped stuff overseas in the past, and I thought, oh, well, insurance doesn't matter. But if you understand general average law, uh, oh, yes. Um, in future, I will never ship anything without being insured up to the hilt. But anyway, that's uh, obscure detail that you didn't go into, probably. <laughs> <laughs> There's another aspect to this uh, regulation of control. I mean, nobody has really attempted. In the First World War, the British attempted to ex use sea power to cut off Germany. Now, they weren't doing it using cruisers and ships, I mean, and warships. I mean, they did. They were a component of it. But it was they found very quickly there was a simpler, much more efficient, uh, much better way of doing it, and that's controlling the flow of information. And um, so, for, 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 let's say, for a cargo to move from, I don't know, New York to um, Hamburg, yes, you have a ship carrying physical goods. But in order for that to take place, there has to be a parallel flows of information. Yes, finance, insurance, um, who, how you determine that you need a quantity of you know, a thousand jeeps in um, Hamburg. Now, the buyers have got to find sellers, negotiate prices. And it's, you can actually interdict the flow of information. And that has, as, in many ways, a more effective um, and a much easier way of con regulating control and access. Um, so what I'm trying to say is, is that it's more than just the Navy's role to, um, if you're going to get into um, 
basically, if you're going to exercise economic warfare, the Navy has to take the lead in explaining to various agencies in Washington, Treasury, Department of Commerce, Department of Trade, you name it, everyone's going to need to be involved. And you need to probably achieve buy-in from major corporations to get the information you're going to need in order to turn, determine the sorts of questions you raised earlier about who owns what and where is it going and is this a legitimate need and if we cut off the supply of this particular product are we hurting ourselves or our allies um, or are we in fact stopping something going through and essential components going through to our enemy I mean this is a vast information requirement and it's not to mention to say you're entering a legal minefield uh, would be the understatement of the century and these, so these, these questions need to be considered and worked out beforehand and the agencies or the interagent level of interagency cooperation needs to be uh, practiced and exercised beforehand. You can't just improvise this on the fly um, once the conflict begins. Otherwise, you're going to have the standard you know, US plan of completely foul everything up for about a year to 18 months before you get serious, uh, which could be uh, sometimes you get away with it. And sometimes you don't. And yeah, you, but we'd really rather not. <laughs> sure, and eighteen months could be uh, could be way too long, right? Yes. Yeah. For some people. Fascinating. Uh, so our guest today has been Dr. Nick Lambert. He's one of the American Sea Power Project authors. His article, "What Is a Navy For?" can be found in the April Proceedings and on our website at usni.org/american-sea-power-project. Nick, thanks for your article and for being with us today. It's always a great conversation. Thank you. All right, that'll do it for our Return to the New Normal episode. I think it was great that we had Dr. Lambert as our guest for this uh, new phase of our existence. The question he asked is basically the mission statement of the Naval Institute, and so it's very appropriate that this will be our subject. Thanks again, Nick. And that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you again very soon. <laughs>